is helpful for us to remember what we have been studying here today by reflecting on just a few very, very small words that are considered to be prepositions. For instance, in verse 1 of chapter 1 of the first Thessalonians letter, that's where we are today still, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning with verse 1, says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Anybody recognize what the preposition that I'm referring to in this particular sentence is? Two-letter word, in. Paul says the Thessalonian church is in God. That's powerful. And I would present this question to you and to me. Are you in God? Are you certain of that? What does it mean to be in God? What is the implication of that relationship that we have if we are in God? Well, John recorded for us a very amazing prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ. In John chapter 17, and you can go there if you would like to read along with me a portion of that particular prayer of Jesus. It's found in John 17, beginning with verse 20, where he says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be one in us. Notice the preposition in. We've mentioned more than once here in this passage that is recorded for us of Jesus' own prayer as he prayed to his Father. Well, he identifies the fact that, first of all, he is in the Father. But he goes on to talk about the fact that when he was in glory with the Father, he shared the glory of the Father. He was in the very presence of God because he is the very Son of God. And he shared the glory of God with the Father. Now that's contradictory to what the Jews would say with regard to the Godhead. Because in the book of Isaiah and other places, we're told that God says, I will share my glory with no other. Plain and simple. The only conclusion that you and I can make from that is that Jesus was indeed and is indeed God. And we represent the idea, the concept, which is so far above our understanding, but it's there in the Word of God, that the God of heaven, the God of the Israelites, the God that we serve, has represented himself in three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's how he has manifested himself to us, by revealing his nature, his characteristics of his godliness to us in describing it. And in that description of himself, he's chosen to reveal his nature to us in those three persons that we call the Trinity. One God Three persons that make up the entirety of the Godhead. Jesus is God. And he had no problem praying that prayer to the Father because it was indeed true that he had that glory that was his as well as the Father's. And in that sense, he was in God. And God was in him. There was a unity, a connection of the 
persons of the Trinity and always has been that way. So in that sense, we can say we are in God because we have been given that relationship, not the same as Jesus, but we're able to say that we are members of the family of God. Jesus is the Son, the only begotten Son. But every one of us who have become believers in Jesus Christ through faith in what He has accomplished on the cross, have all of us become sons and daughters by adoption. But that adoption makes us one in God, in His family. And we won't share His glory as God, but we will share the glory that He gives to us that is for us, promised by the Lord Himself. He goes on, he says in verse 22 of John's Gospel, And the glory which you gave me, I have given them. So consider this, people. You are in God if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. If you have received your salvation through faith alone, in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, forgiveness of sins, you are in God. In the same way, you are in Christ. You are in It's a great preposition to remember and apply in your relationship with your Heavenly Father and with your Savior. You are in God. That's what Paul was telling the Thessalonian church. They were to know that they had that relationship with God because they had believed in the Word that was given to them. Again, rereading that verse 1, to the church. That's not the building, that's the people. That's the you and I. To the church in Searsport, a safe harbor in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Powerful thought. Apply it. Know it well. Believe it. Live it. Verse 1 continues with the latter part of that verse with another prepositional clause that I want you to take note of. This time he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That prepositional phrase, from God. What do we receive from God? Paul tells us we receive grace and peace. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you have this peace? Do you have this peace from God? Think about that. Notice that Paul uses this phrase, grace and peace, in almost all of his letters, with the exception of perhaps the pastoral letters to Titus and Timothy. But in every case where he uses that phrase, it's always grace and peace. It's never peace and grace. You know why? Well, I've mentioned it before, and I I probably sound like a broken record, but I'll tell you again, grace must come first, because without grace of God, you cannot have the peace of God. It has to be first. And Paul presents the grace before the peace, to, I believe, remind us of the way that God has done great and mighty things in us and for us by giving us His peace because He has extended His grace. You cannot have the peace of God unless you have made peace with God. Remember that also. The peace of God is something that can come only to those who have reconcile themselves to God. And by the way, that's another preposition that we're going to look at next. In verse 2, he says, We give thanks to God always for you all, 
making mention of you in our prayers. Take note of the fact that Paul says, we give thanks to God. That's important. Do you give thanks to God? Well, what is it to give thanks to God for? You're in God. You've got the peace of God. Then you'd best be giving thanks to God. Do you understand what I'm saying? There is a relationship with these adverbial and adjectival clauses. They all have to do with the fact that we have a relationship with Him. Make no mistake, Paul is laying it out very clearly to the Thessalonian church and to you and I that we should also have that same kind of faith in Him to do and say for us, work for us, be there for us in every situation in our lives. We give thanks to God because He gives abundantly, exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. We give thanks to God because He saved us from sin and from a life of damnation. He gave us redemption. He justified us by faith in Jesus Christ. Give thanks to God for these things, people. Paul says, I don't only just think about it once in a while, by the way. He says, I give thanks to God always for you all. That's what I like to think about when I pray to the Lord, the body of believers that God has given us here. I give thanks to you all, or to God rather, for you all. I'll give thanks to you too when it's appropriate, but I give thanks to God for you all. Another prepositional, by the way. But it's more directed to you and me. I give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. Paul, by the way, is including not only his prayers, but the prayers of those who are with him, Sylvanus and Timothy. We, he said, give thanks. They got together. They prayed together. They worshiped the Lord together. And when they prayed together, they remembered the saints that they had been visiting, the people that had been persecuted because of their faith in Christ. By the way, the Thessalonian church was indeed a very persecuted church from the very beginning. In fact, one of the reasons that Paul writes this letter is to address the, the, the impression that they had with regard to the second coming of the Lord because they thought that things were so bad in Thessalonica that surely the tribulation had already begun. Paul it will address that in Second Thessalonians. But here, in this passage, he doesn't really go in that direction yet. He wants to ensure them of some of the other things that he had taught them Besides the fact that the Lord was coming again, that's not the only thing that he mentioned to them while he was there for so many days and perhaps a couple of weeks after the time that he indicates. And by the way, he only was there according to the Word of God, teaching in the synagogue for three Sabbath days. And then we're not told how much longer after that before he had to leave Thessalonica, but it must have been a relatively short period of time because Jews began to persecute right away and they forced him out of the city. So there was very precious little time that he had to teach them a lot of doctrine. And yet we find in this passage that he had given them a great deal of doctrine besides the second coming of Christ. 
He says in verse 3, after having said, we give thanks to God always for you, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, and your patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God and the Father. Remembering them in their prayers without ceasing. So he says, I pray always for you, and I remember always, without ceasing, all of that which you have already accomplished in the short time that you have been a church, a group of believers who come together by faith, worshiping the Lord collectively. And in that worship, there is body ministry. He tells about that here. The work of faith, the labor of love, the patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Take note of the fact that there are Three words in this grouping that are very important to the Apostle Paul and I hope to all of us here. Faith, hope, and love. Now, it's not in that order here, but that should ring a bell to you if you remember any study in the book of 1 Corinthians where Paul says faith, hope, and love are the three major essentials of our body ministry. And he talked about the fact that each one of those are very, very important indeed, but the greatest of these is love. But here he talks about the fact that they were demonstrating their work of faith. They were doing things that demonstrated their works. Their faith, rather. Remember James had said to those who were reading the letter of James for the first time, indicated to them that they, and they were mostly Jews that James was addressing, believed that their works proved nothing. Did it? James said, Show me your faith. Show me your works, rather. And I will show you my faith by my works. I confused you already with all of that, but... What James was saying is, faith will produce good works. And the works doesn't give you salvation. The things that we do, the works that we do for others, for God, are done to demonstrate that we are indeed saved. They were doing works that demonstrated their faith. And there was a labor of love a love for God, a love for one another. The love of God is in the Greek agape, or various forms of that word. It's a very, very strong word in the Greek language. There are three or four other words that can be translated love in our English language. But the Greeks were very specific in their descriptive language of Hellenistic Greek at the time. Agape was a word that Paul actually made use of to show that the love of God is the greatest of all loves. It's a love that is enduring. It's a selfless love. It's a love that we're instructed we should have for one another and for God. We can say, 
I love roast beef. And we can say, I love that dress. Or we can say, I love my wife. Which of those would you say is best describing agape? Don't say prime rib. No, that's not it. It's not it. So you've you got to understand, there's, there's an erotic love, there's an I like you kind of love, and there is a love, 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 love kind of love. An unrelenting, unselfish love. That's the love that Jesus had for us. And Paul tells us that that love is the love men, listen up, it's the love that we should have for our wives. Agape. They labored in that love. They made sure, they made an effort, they made an effort to demonstrate that they loved one another and that they were lovers of God. That was part of who they were. Let it be done here as well, my friends. Let us labor in love as they apparently labored in love. Paul will go on to say, you're doing it well, but you need to do it even more and more. And that's my advice to all of us here. We might be doing it now, but we should be doing it even more so, especially as the days go forward, as things become more and more dark in the world around us. We need that kind of love for one another that will keep us together, united in faith, united in a bond of love that will not succumb to the pressures of this world. Labor in that love, my friends. And then finally, that last one, patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father. Patience. Hope. God promised Jeremiah, I have a hope and a future for you. That's His promise to you as well. You and I have been given great privileges. And we don't just hope with a hope that says, I hope so, kind of uncertainty. We hope with an expectant hope. A hope that says, God has said, therefore I believe. I know whom I have believed, Paul said. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Paul said. I live for Him and Him alone. He is my source of strength and my hope is in Him. Read through the Psalms and you'll see David say, My hope is in you. It was a hope for a future. A hope that yet to be fulfilled would come because God said it. That's the hope that we have. That's the hope the Thessalonian church had. That's the hope that we need to convey to anyone who asks about the faith that we have in Christ. You tell them, I have hope in what God has said because God's Word is true. And though I have not seen the results of everything that I know He has promised, I know they will come to pass. I have hope for the future. Do you? So, again, think about that. Do you know that you are in God? Do you know that you have peace with God? Or from God, I should say. And do you give thanks to God for that? And lastly again, verse 4 says, Knowing, beloved, 
brethren, your election by God. Does it please you to know that God has chosen you? That's what the word election means. You have been chosen. Jesus told his disciples, you haven't chosen me, I have chosen you. But if we are to accept the fact that we are in God and and to recognize the fact that we have peace from God and to demonstrate that knowledge of the fact that we are in Him and have peace from Him, that we are able to give thanks to God and then to know also that we have been chosen by God, is that enough for you? Does that make it so that you want to live for Him all the days of your life? Does that encourage you today in the midst of all kinds of trials and the difficulties that you have to deal with on a daily basis? Are you absolutely certain that you can stand firm in your faith no matter what takes place, even unto death? That's the challenge that Paul is giving us all here today. He did that for them as well knowing that they were indeed going through some very difficult times, he encouraged them to think on these things, to realize that there is that blessed hope that we have and the encouragement that we have knowing that we can indeed love one another as Christ loved the church and also to love our God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength and to do those things that God has called us to do, to work out our own salvation in fear and trembling and let the Lord God be glorified in it. Paul says in verse 5, for our gospel, his conclusion, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power. And in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. Paul says, look, we taught the Word of God. That's not anything that they should ever even begin to question. He came to them and he presented the Word of God to them. But he says it wasn't only the Word of God. We came presenting that Word of God to you, but it was presented in power. The power of the Holy Spirit going forth by the Spirit of God. The Word of God promises that His Word is going to go forth and not return unto Him void. And that is what we want to encourage everyone here and everywhere we go, that We have that kind of God that we can serve Him knowing that the gospel that has been presented is the very Word of God. Have faith in God. Let God be true and every man a liar, the Word of God tells us. These are things that Paul expressed with power of the Holy Spirit. And in much assurance, over and over he must have said, this is true, this is true. And that's what we're saying here. These things are true. These things are For you and for me, be assured that there is no doubt in Paul's mind and there should be no doubt in any of our minds that the reality of what God has spoken in His Word is powerful, it's present, it's for all of us. Great assurance, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Great song of old. Do you have that blessed assurance? Do you have that blessed hope?
Verse 6 says, And you became followers of us, and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Spirit. Affliction and joy in the same sentence. I don't know if I like that that much. But Paul is saying that's what they did. They received it even in the midst of great affliction with joy. I hope that that is how we are as well. But it can only happen if we have the Holy Spirit in us. Remember, we talked about that, I think, last week, and I don't want to belabor the point, but we have joy, unspeakable and full of glory. We can say that because the Holy Spirit dwells in us. And that joy, no matter what might happen around us, does not affect, or the the things that happen around us does not affect that joy. It may make us less happy, but happiness is not joyfulness. They're two distinct ideas, concepts. Make sure that you understand happiness is an emotion. Joy is a characteristic. It's a fruit of the Spirit. You can have joy in the midst of trouble. And you should have because the Word of God says that that's always available to anyone who believes. They did believe it. Notice that Paul says they have unspeakable joy in the midst of trials. Notice that Paul says, going back to the previous verse, They were elect by God. God chose them. And because God chose them, they should be able to recognize the fact that no matter what happens, God is in control. Now, some people have a difficult time with the idea of election. What about man's choice? Matt had said something very profound as he commented on one of the songs we sang this morning. I've chosen to be holy. Chosen. That's you. You chose. God didn't choose that for you. You chose. So you do have choice. Did he not give Adam and Eve a choice in the garden? They just happened to make the wrong choice. But he gave them choice. He gives all of us choice to either accept or reject what has been given in the Word of God. So yes, man does have choice, and it's an important aspect of how we come to that place of full salvation in Christ Jesus, saving faith. But He gives us that opportunity to choose, even though He knows what our choice might be. Just as he knew the choice of Adam and Eve before they made that choice, so it is with you and I. Before we made a choice either for or against, God knew what that choice was. That's known as the foreknowledge of God. He knows everything from the beginning to the end. There's no question and should be no question in any of our minds that God can say He chose you from the foundations of the world you are His elect. He predestinated you, Paul tells us in the book of Romans, and He foreknew what your choice is going to be. So they both are together in the Word of God. And you can't take one side and apply it as doctrine without consideration of the other side or vice versa. They both are in the Word of God. God's sovereignty, man's choice. They come together in a beautiful way 
that only the kingdom of heaven can explain. Mankind can't reconcile those two things. But they're both in the Word of God and they both are to be believed. So yes, He is the one who has chosen me and chosen you. And I have chosen to be holy and to accept His election of me. I have received, that's a choice, to receive the Word in much affliction. And the result of that receiving is joy unspeakable and full of glory. Verse 7 says, So that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. Not only did they accept what Paul had said, they began to spread the news. And it was because Thessalonica was a central city, a very large city, in the heart of the Roman Empire, the word went out everywhere very quickly. Paul says that he was actually impressed by all of these things. You became examples to all of us and to those in Macedonia and Achaia who believe, for from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth. The people, not the clergy, spoke to their neighbors, their fellow workers, their families. It was sounded forth because they were excited about what God had done for them. They were excited of the fact that God was in them. They were excited about the fact that they had received peace from God. They were excited about the fact that they could give thanks to God for those wonderful blessings. They were excited about the fact that God was the one who had chosen them. The word went forth in power from Paul, but it continued to go forth in power from them. And he says, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. We're talking about the Roman Empire was beginning to hear the good news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ from their words that were going forth in such great power. In every place, he says, your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. Paul says, hey, I can close up shop, man. I don't have to do this anymore. You're doing it all yourself. I'm happy with that. I don't need to go out any further than I have. But he did. He couldn't stop doing that because he was compelled to do that. He was the apostle to the Gentiles and it wasn't time for him to stop yet. It's not time, by the way, for me to stop, I don't think. And I will continue to praise the Lord, continue to serve Him, continue to worship Him, continue to teach the Word of God to anyone who will come as long as He makes me able to do so. Psalm 71 says, Lord God, do not forsake me now that I'm old and gray-haired. I fit that description. That's cool. But then he goes on to say, I desire to proclaim your strength to this generation, your power to everyone who is to come. That's my goal. And I'll do it as long as God allows me to do it. That's what Paul continued to do. But he emphasized the fact that they were doing it also and it brought great pleasure to him. It brings me great pleasure to hear you all speaking to friends and neighbors about your faith in God. The time is short Darkness is coming upon this earth world and we need to be there ready to proclaim the good news. He says in verse 9, For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you 
and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. We looked at that last week. They turned to God from idols. Again, prepositions have great meaning. Turning to God from idols implies one simple truth. They were going in that direction, and now they're going in that direction. From to. Not a combination of the two, but a separation from one to the other. And lastly, verse 10 says, And to wait for His Son. For Him. It's for His glory. Wait for Him. He's coming. The Thessalonian church was expecting that to happen any day. It did kind of make it so that there were some, um, a little bit of uncertainty in their minds. Well, if he's coming soon, then maybe is it really worth our while to even worry about working anymore? Maybe we should just go off someplace in the desert area and just lift up our voices to God until he shows up? You know, some people have that kind of attitude. It's wrong. If a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat, Paul tells us. No, don't stop doing everything that you normally do. The Word of God tells us very clearly that until He comes, there will be everything going on as usual. Life will continue. There'll be giving in marriage. There'll be uh, graduations. There'll be job opportunities. There'll be things that you will be involved in that you'll want to stay involved in as long as it's right for you to do so. And we have to live our lives as though it might not happen today. But yet... We also have to have the mindset that perhaps it would happen today. This morning I was taking a shower. Sandy was doing something around the house and she ended up calling her sister, one of her sisters. And as she dialed the phone, the phone started ringing and her sister answered the phone and, and Sandy heard what she thought was a trumpet blast. And she said to her sister, wait a minute, hang on just a sec, put the phone down. And she was wondering, what was that all about? She heard a shofar. I didn't hear it because I was taking a shower and I didn't have my hearing aids on. I couldn't hear it. So I figured, no, it can't be the Lord because I didn't hear it. But she was convinced I heard a trumpet blast. And she was really, really very adamant about it. As it turns out... We have a neighbor who happens to have a shofar. And just at that particular time, he happened to blow it. We both were looking at the cemetery across the street to see if the graves were open. There's an expectancy that you can have in Christ Jesus. He is coming. We don't know when. Perhaps today. But he hasn't come yet. Why? I don't know why. How do I know? Because we're all here. Unless, of course, we're fooling ourselves. But I don't think that's the case. Because I'm convinced 
that every one of us in this room here today is in God. I'm convinced that every one of us here today knows that we have a peace from God. I'm convinced that everyone here today is constantly giving thanks to God for His faithfulness to us. I'm convinced that everyone here today knows that we have an election from God. And that election from God ensures us because His Word declares, I hold you in the palm of my hand and I will not let you go. I will never leave you or forsake you. I will keep you always. Nothing can separate you and me from the love of God. Nothing. Neither height, nor depth, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come. There is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. God is good to you and me. And the promise is still to you and I that He made to the Thessalonian church that He is coming again in power and great glory. To, to wait for Him is what we should be doing. Jesus told His disciples, keep looking up, your redemption draws near. Let it be so with you and I today in this present age. And let our expectant hope become a reality, O Lord, in your time and in your way. Wait for the Son of God from heaven, my friends. He was raised from the dead. He was ascended into glory. And He's coming again.